Well, today I want us to pray with our palms facing out, but I want to take it a step farther. I want you to raise your arms in prayer with your palms facing out, and we're going to pray together a prayer of faith. Let's do that. Father in heaven, today we come offering to you our entire selves. That's what faith really is, Lord, and thank you for teaching that to us. We offer to you all that we are, and you offer to us yourself completely. When we experience that, there is nothing like it. But Father, the truth is, faith is hard for many of us. It really is. We like to keep our arms down and close to our chest that we might guard our hearts. We tend to not pray in faith because we're afraid of the answer. We tend not to pray in faith because we're scared you might say no. We tend, Lord, to hold things back from you. Today, it's our desire as a congregation not to do that any longer, but rather to offer you 100% of ourselves as we receive from you 100% of who you are. Would you help us see that and experience it and live it and pass it on? And in those moments where we would take our arms back, where we would take our hands back, remind us who you are and open our eyes that we might see. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. One of my favorite authors these days is a fellow named Mark Buchanan. He's written a number of books that I really appreciate. I really enjoy his writing, enjoy his teaching as well. He preaches in British Columbia out on Vancouver Island a few years ago. Tina and I actually took our family onto the island hoping to be able to go to church with Mark and hear him preach. And the way things lined up, we didn't get to do that. And I'm, I'm actually very disappointed in it because I truly do love his preaching and teaching that much. In one of the books that he has written, he says that in the church today, you can divide a line between people and everybody's going to fall on one side of that line or the other. The first group, one side of the line, that he would say exists in modern Christianity is a group of people that he would refer to as theists. This is what that looks like. Now, a theist is defined as somebody that believes in God. Here's the definition. Those that believe there is a God, the theist. Now, he would say on the other side of the line, the other half of people, even in the church today, modern Christianity, would fit in this category. They are atheists defined as those that do not believe in God. And his understanding of it, his teaching of it is, you're in one category or the other. You're either a theist or an atheist. Now, some of you would say, well, what about agnostics? We hear that term thrown around all the time. A person is an agnostic, somebody that is looking for truth or seeking truth. In that regard, I tend to agree with a number of teachers and scholars today that would say an agnostic is simply a theist that lacks conviction or an atheist that lacks conviction. That's all an agnostic is. But Buchanan says, even within his belief that people fall on one side of the line or the other, a theist or an atheist, that he believes it's entirely possible that there is a third group within modern Christianity today. And this is what that would look like. They, were, or they are called apatheist. Now, an apatheist is a person that takes their belief in God, they're a theist, and combines it with apathy for a definition that looks like this. There's somebody that believes in God but just doesn't care. 
They believe that God is out there doing what only God can. God is spinning the planets. He's keeping everything doing what it's supposed to do. He answers a few prayers, though it would appear that that's random at best. God is there, but his existence does not touch theirs. These apatheists are everywhere within the church. They are everywhere within Christianity today. The truth of the matter is, really, they're living like atheists. Frederick Buckner would say it this way, Thus an atheist can be a believer without even knowing it, the same as a believer can be an atheist without even knowing it. Buckner goes on to say that it is entirely possible for a non-believer to believe that there is no God, yet live like there is one. The same way it is possible for a believer to believe that there is a God and live like there isn't one. And all of that happens because of apathy or the concept of being an apatheist, a person who believes that God is there, but his existence does not touch ours. would be my belief that that happens because of a Habakkuk 3 problem. David read those words for us just a few minutes ago. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. In the Old Testament, book of Habakkuk, we've been preaching this for several weeks now. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. The prophet writes these words, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. Even the prophet Habakkuk would say, Lord, I've heard of the things that you're capable of. I've heard the stories of what you have done in the past. I stand in awe of those, but I've not experienced them personally. Would you renew those things in our day? Let me live those stories. Let me experience what I've heard of from the past. In essence, what it boils down to is Habakkuk, like so many of us today, had a faith problem. He believed, but his faith was weak. There are a lot of people today that believe in God, but their faith is very weak. I want us to look today at what I would refer to as a saving faith so that you can really understand what it is. It is my hope, my goal, that by the time we're done with this message, you'll be longing to have a faith just like that. In order to see it, we've got to go to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter. Actually, 2 Peter, I'm sorry. Go to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and just listen to how Peter starts this letter. Verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Now listen one more time. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Two things that I want to call to your attention about faith, just from that verse. The first one is this. Faith is a gift. You cannot work for it, you cannot buy it, you cannot create it, you cannot conjure it up. It is a gift given to you. Now that makes a lot of people wonder, how does that work? If I have no faith, yet I need faith in order to believe, how do I get faith? The answer is real simple. It is there for the asking. Faith is there for the asking. If we'll go before God and say, Lord, I need faith, or my faith is weak and I need you to strengthen it, God is ready to do that. It seems goofy to think that I need this in order to ask for it, but it really does work. When we ask for it, we receive it as a free gift. 
Let me take you to the book of Romans and just show you how that works. Keep your finger there in 2 Peter. We're going to come back to it. But now we're in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, here's the way it works. If you determine that your faith is weak and you need more and you ask God for it, God will give it to you. And some of you are thinking, well, I've tried it. I really have. And it just doesn't seem to be working for me. I have not received that type of a faith. Well, it is really there. If you will surround yourself with people of faith, people that live by faith, you will begin to see a pattern of it. And you'll begin to see how it works. And this is the way it works. When people of faith are confronted with a crisis in their life, rather than getting all shocked and shaken by it, they will simply say, God knows what he's doing. I'm going to trust him. Rather than saying, where is God? They begin to look for God. Rather than questioning the existence and the presence of God, people of faith say, God is in control. He's in charge of this whole thing. They're a joy to be around, a pure joy to be around. They are folks that fit in what I would refer to as the then-God category. They're people that know God is ready to act. Let me show you what the then-God type of people look like. We're going to go to the Old Testament now. Keep your finger in 2 Peter. We're going to come back there. Back to the book of Judges. Samson is the judge of the Israelites at the time. The Israelites are under Philistine control, but still they are their own people. And Samson is the one empowered by God to watch over them, to govern everything that's happening, to settle their disputes, to lead the people. That was all done during the period of the Judges. Now, he was a a man who was entirely gifted by the Lord, supernaturally gifted by the Lord. He had received a strength nobody else had ever received, strongest man to ever live. He used that strength to glorify God. He also used that strength for his own gain and for his own purpose at times. Samson, even though he was God's man in that hour, was still somewhat arrogant when he wanted to be, and it got him into trouble. He got haughty all the time. But he married a woman outside of God's command. He married a Philistine woman. Instead of marrying one of the Israelites, he married outside of themselves over and over and over. God said in the Old Testament, don't do that. Don't be unequally yoked. But he did. He had gone away for a while. When he came back, he found out that his father-in-law had given his wife to another man. She was gone. He was pretty upset. He went back to the Philistines. He wreaked havoc among them. All kinds of different things happened. Then he came back to the Israelites, and the Israelites said, What are you doing? Now we're going to be in trouble with the Philistines because of what you have done. I want you to listen to what happens. This is chapter 15 of the book of Judges, starting in verse 11. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and to hand you over to the Philistines. 
That's how strong he was. 3,000 men came to tie up one man. I'm not talking five to one odds. This is 3,000 to one. They were going to overpower him, tie him up. Verse 12, or yeah, verse 12. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and to hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth-Lehi. Isn't that a great story? That's just Samson. Verse 18, though. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called en and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Did you catch the then God? Here's the way it played out. Samson, using all of the strength that God had given him, accomplished what he needed to accomplish, and then he was at the end of himself, worn down, totally exhausted. He'd thrown the jawbone away, and he was thirsty. All of the strength that God had given him, he still couldn't find a drink of water. So what he did was talk to God about it. And then God opened up the rock. People of faith live that way. When they are confronted with things at the end of themselves... Their first reaction is to say, Lord, this is where I'm at, and this is what I need. And they start looking to see what God is going to do. Those people experience then-God moments all the time. People of faith experience that regularly. God says, now I'm going to act. You don't have to worry about it. Now I'm going to take care of this. It's a beautiful, beautiful way to live. Wonderful way to live. If you want to erode that, though, spend time in the counsel of the wicked. Walk with people that do not understand faith. Spend time around people that do not trust in God, and they will erode your faith. They will get you to a place where you no longer trust the Lord. The psalmist actually says it this way. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So if you want to experience faith and learn faith living, spend time around faith-driven people, people that live with their expectation in heaven. If you want to destroy it, Surround yourself with people that have no understanding of God. Now that sounds goofy, but really what has happened is the church has become more like the world in the past 30, 40, 50 years instead of becoming more like Jesus. And as a result of that, entire churches have lost their faith. They're no longer looking to God to give them what they need or to provide for them the answers for their very existence. And if it happens to churches, it happens to individuals. And when that happens... 
the understanding of God's ability just disappears. So you might think to yourself, I want to live that way. I really do. But there are things missing in my life that keep me from getting there. That's not necessarily true. I want you to turn back to 2 Peter with me. While you're going back that direction, ask yourself this. In your own walk with the Lord, what would you say is missing? What is your biggest struggle? I just want you to get that in your mind. Now, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about your desire to pursue a full relationship with God. What's missing? See if you can come up with something real quick. I asked the guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings to answer that question. Every one of them did. And most of us should be able to. So here we are, 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to listen to what Peter says about this. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. One more time in case you missed it. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Here's what Peter wants you to understand. You have everything you need to live by faith. You have everything that you need to pursue godliness. You have everything that you need through the gift of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ. You have everything that you need for life. Yet a number of people never tap that. I really like this illustration of it. I want you to imagine that you and your wife or you and your husband have decided that you want to build a new house. You've dreamed about it for a long time. You want to build your dream home, but you know it's going to be a long ways off. You know it's going to be a real struggle. You're not sure you're going to be able to pull it off. So you just start praying about it. Lord, we want to build our dream home. We want to be able to do this. Would you help us see if it's possible? And God not only helps you see it, he actually provides it. So one day you open up the mail and you find a, a deed in your name for the piece of property that you have wanted for the longest time. It's paid in full. The next day you open up a letter that says all of the building materials that you need to build your dream home will be delivered the next day. So you run up to that property and sure enough, here comes the truck. They start unloading all of the lumber, all of the wiring, all of the plumbing. They unload all of the landscaping. They unload everything. The cabinets are there. The trim work is there. Right down to the very last screw, it is all delivered onto this property that you have just been given. Now you've been given all of the building materials, and it's stacked up beautifully. So you step off to the side like this, and you look at all of it, and you think, wow, that's amazing absolutely amazing and then you do nothing with it nothing at all you just let it sit there and rot that's what a lot of people do spiritually you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness god has said i'm giving all of it to you but we look at it and let it rot there are other people that would look over there and say wow everything i need to build my dream home it's all right here this is unbelievable so they decide to build a really nice garden shed now, they're going to have the nicest garden shed anybody's ever had, but they're not going to have their dream home. Really nice garden shed. Few other people would look at that stack of lumber and all the supplies and decide that they're going to build for themselves a go-kart. Not a dream home, a go-kart. Instead of building what they really wanted to and what they're really equipped to, they build things that don't even come close. You see, spiritually, that happens. Over here, we have all these blessings from God, everything that we need for life and godliness. Over here, we have us. And between us and those things is a chasm that Peter would actually define with a three-letter word, for, F-O-R. 
you have everything you need for life and godliness. You just got to get across it. The equation looks like this. You're over here. All of these supplies are over here. And then here's the big chasm. All you have to do is move from this side of the equation to this side. Sounds really easy, doesn't it? It really does. If we do that, here's what we find out. That through faith, we have everything we need for life that leads to salvation. We have everything that we need for life that leads to to salvation. And that is truly the good news. Now, if you want to understand life and you want to understand faith, then let's go back to some places that will help us do that. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, Hebrews 11 has been called the faith chapter. It records unbelievable stories, truly unbelievable stories of people that have lived their entire lives by faith People write out of Scripture. You can read their stories and study them if you want to, and you should, because it will encourage you and inspire you. But I want us to look, first of all, at the first three verses of this chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. That's what Habakkuk was talking about. Lord, we've heard the stories of the past. We've heard the stories of the ancients. The writer of Hebrews says... This kind of faith, the ancients, the people of the past, were commended for it. And that's why Habakkuk was saying, do it again, Lord, do it again. Do it again in our time. Let us experience it. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Faith begins with a knowledge of who God is, and it has to. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand this. What matters is not matter. What matters is the creator of matter. Did you catch that? What matters is not matter. What matters is the creator of matter. We've talked about this a number of different times in church. I love watching the scientific world try to disprove God. They run into a dead end every time. Every time. They may look at a rock and say this rock is formed from all kinds of particles and molecules and then they try to break it down and discover where the particles and the molecules came from and they can't do it. They can't explain it. What matters is not matter. What matters is the creator of matter. Knowledge will lead us back to who God is and that's where our faith has to begin. And once we've gotten to that place, then we can actually understand that God is there, interested in our daily lives, and our faith matters in everyday living. It really does. One of the problems in modern evangelism is that we try to tell people that Jesus can be trusted with their souls for eternity without ever telling them that he can be trusted with their daily lives. And a lot of us have bought into that. Jesus can be trusted with my eternal soul, but I need to hold on to the control of my daily life. And if we do not read the Bible and read it the right way, we will miss the fact that Jesus is very interested in your daily life. He wants to touch you right where you live. He wants to do life with you. And we ought to be able to allow that to happen. You see, when Jesus would go into communities... Typically, before he would preach, he would heal people. He would start meeting their needs. He would raise some of them from the dead. 
In one particular place, he actually saved the host of a wedding from grave embarrassment. He would make the lame walk and the blind see. God would actually, through his son, boil down his concerns so much for people that he would provide what was needed at meals, he would help fishermen catch fish, and he would even pay taxes for people. Jesus paid Peter's taxes. That's how much he cares about us. Yet we teach people, you trust Jesus with the salvation of your soul, but not your everyday life. And folks, that's upside down. If we want people to know who Jesus Christ is and we want them to live by faith, then we need to teach them that they can trust who he is every day with everything. And then they can begin to live by faith. And that's the kind of faith that saves I want to show you an example of it again in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Elisha is the prophet of God during this time. He has taken the place of Elijah after he has ascended into heaven. Interestingly enough, the two of them were together before Elisha took over Elijah's spot. Elisha would actually say to Elijah at one point, I want you to give me a double portion of your power. If you were to study the life of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, you would be able to count the number of miracles that he did. And then study the the life of Elisha in the book of 2 Kings, you would see that he performed exactly twice as many miracles. He received the double portion of Elijah's spirit. Well, Elisha now is, is the prophet in the book of 2 Kings, and he is sideways with the king. That happened all the time. The prophets were always sideways with the people in positions of power. This is verse 8, chapter 6. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. You'll find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Now, we do not do that passage any justice if we read that biblically. To read it biblically would sound like, oh, my Lord, what should we do? That is not the way it is written. The servant steps out of the tent while Elisha is still scraping the sleep from his eyes. Maybe he's getting the coffee ready. Maybe he's making breakfast. There might be some eggs, but no bacon. All right, that's lost. So he's out taking care of all this stuff, and he looks up and he sees horses and chariots, and they are all there for the sole purpose of capturing Elisha. They want to do him in. And the servant yells, Oh, my Lord, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this? He's scared. He is scared down to his very core, terrified. What are we supposed to do? Listen to what Elisha says. We're still in chapter 6, verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. What he saw was that those that were with them was more than those that were against them. Wouldn't that be amazing? If you were in the middle of something, scared, terrified, rocked right down to your core to be able to look around and see the forces of the heavenly realm surrounding you, those that are with us are more than those that are against us. A number of you might think to yourself, yep, that's an Old Testament story. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, I beg to differ with you. When Tina and I were in Colorado, there was a fellow in our community named Larry that was in charge of training the SWAT teams for that community. Now, Canyon City, Colorado is the prison capital of the world. There are 16 prisons there. So the SWAT team is pretty important because there are escapes all the time. And the SWAT team is responsible for bringing those prisoners back and and getting them where they're supposed to be. Well, Larry was in charge of training all of the SWAT team for that very job. He was pretty good at it. What nobody knew was that at the same time he was training the SWAT team, he was involved in some of his own criminal activity. When that came to light, the SWAT team did what they were supposed to do. The sheriff's office said, we need to go and arrest Larry and bring him in. Well, they knew that that was going to be a challenge because of all of the training that Larry had, and he knew all of their tactics. So it wasn't going to be just as easy as knocking on the door unless he surrendered. Larry, when he got word that they were coming after him, barricaded himself in his house. He called the preacher of the church that Tina and I were working at. They had met a few times, and he said, hey, would you come over to my house? I have some things I need to talk with you about. And Scott went, got in his car, drove down the road, pulled into Larry's driveway, walked up to the door, knocked on the door. Larry unlocked it, let him in, and they sat and talked for several hours. Larry confessed all of his sins, all of his crime to Scott, And he said, would you help me with this? Scott said, by all means, I will. I'm going to leave. I'm going to make some phone calls, and I will be back. You wait right here. Scott got in his car. He headed down the road when a couple of police officers stepped up out of the ditch. He had no idea they were even there. They stepped up out of the ditch and stopped him. They said, Reverend Middleton, we know that you've been in Larry's house. We need to know what's going on. How many guns does he have? How well armed is he? How difficult is it going to be for us to get into the house? And Scott said, it's not going to be difficult at all. Yes, he is armed. Yes, the the guns are laid around the house. He was prepared to fight, and now he's not. He wants to give himself up. So now all of a sudden, the police officers talking to him are pretty well relieved. Then they said this to Scott. Now, what happened to the other two guys? And Scott said, what are you talking about? They said, when you pulled into his driveway, we have confirmed reports from all around the house that three of you got out of the car and that all of you went into the house. You went through the front door, and two people went around to the back, and they went in the back door. What happened to those two guys? And Scott said, what are you talking about? I came here by myself. And they said, no, you didn't. We have the confirmed reports. Where are the other two guys? And Scott said, I'm telling you, there weren't any other guys in the car with me. It was just me. You know what happened? Those that were with him were more than those that were against him. It still happens. So anybody that tells me it doesn't, I have to say, I I don't agree. It still happens. You may not physically see it, but spiritually you can. And when you experience the presence of God, your faith will never be shaken again. And it can be experienced in the smallest of ways as well as the biggest of ways in your life simply by saying, Lord, open my eyes that I might experience you. I don't want to hold anything back. 
And again, this is where it is so important for you to spend time around people of faith so that you can watch how they live. But in as much as you watch how they live, you pay attention to how Jesus lives. John Ortberg would actually say it this way. If we watch the faith of Jesus, it will not be long before we live the faith of Jesus. If we watch the faith of Jesus, it will not be long before we live the faith of Jesus. You pay attention to his life. You pay attention to how he does things. You pay attention to what he says because there is a congruence between what he thinks, what he says, and what he does. What Jesus says he means and what he means he says and he lives it. So if he lives it, so can we. We really can. In our pursuit of being like him, it is possible to live like him. Faith helps us do that. Once we have done those things, then I believe that it is necessary for people to figure out what I would refer to as a faith map. If you struggle with faith, then maybe this will help you. It is a faith map. Take a look at this. The first stop along the way is to learn the teachings of the Bible, to absorb everything that Scripture says about the things that you are dealing with in your life. And let me say again, I'm one who believes that the Bible speaks of everything that we deal with. Learn what the Bible has to say. And then study the lives of those that live it, beginning with Jesus. We just talked about that. And then number three is try it yourself. Begin to put those things into practice and see what happens. Your faith will be strengthened because you're doing what the Bible says. Your faith will grow because you have said, Lord, I have heard what you've said, I trust it, and now I will try it. The fourth part of that map, then, is arriving at a precious faith that no one will ever take from you. And people that have that type of faith know what I'm talking about. You will fight, militantly fight, to protect that type of faith. No one will ever take it from you because you've experienced it. You have lived it. The map has led you to that very spot and you don't ever want to go back. Amen? Amen? Amen. If you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. So the question is this. How do you start that? How do you get moving to get that type of a faith? Well, I found myself this past week really asking that question. Where should people begin? Because I know there are a whole lot of apatheists running around in the church. So where should they start? Where should the process really get going? What's the springboard and the catalyst? I thought about some of the relational teachings of Jesus. I thought maybe if, if we just said, if you're wrestling with a vengeful heart and, and you have somebody that you have harbored bitterness towards for a long time, try forgiveness. And that seems pretty easy because all, over, all through the New Testament, you see that being presented. Forgiveness is better than vengeance. Try it. I thought about some relational stuff. Maybe your marriage is in trouble, and you just need to apply some of the principles of the New Testament to your marriage. That'd be a great place to start. Or parenting, or other relational issues. And I went through a whole list of them, thinking maybe this is the good spot. And here's what I arrived at. The best place in the world to find a catalyst for your faith is in your checkbook. It is in your checkbook. Do you realize that money is the only thing that God ever told us to test him in? And that's found in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. He started talking about tithing, and, and what you find, not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, is that generosity is always better than greed. And if you want the blessings of God, 
turn the world's thinking upside down. Become generous that God might bless you. It's found all through the Bible. It is the best place to begin. It is the perfect place to start if you want a faith that is precious, like Peter's. If you want a faith that no one will ever take from you and you're trying to figure out how to develop it, start with your checkbook. A number of years ago, our elders made an offer and and they've done this two or three times through the years. Though I didn't talk to them this week, I'm feeling pretty safe in offering it to you again. This is their offer because they know how important this is. A few years ago, not because the church needed money, but because they wanted people to experience the blessings of God, our elders said that if you have never tithed before, and by the way, an Old Testament tithe is 10%. The New Testament never once mentions the 10% tithe. That is an Old Testament philosophy and teaching that made its way into the New Testament. So they said, if you would have never tithed before, and you will try it for 90 days and see if you can take God at his word, if God fails you, they will return every dime you gave. Now, that's a great challenge. It really is. So they said, because we believe this, because we trust it, we're going to extend it, and people picked it up. A number of people said, we're going to try it. And they began to live by faith, first in their checkbook, that they might live by faith in every other aspect of their life. Scott was sitting up here first service, so Scott, I'm going to pick on you again. You remember when you offered that the first time, Scott? And do you know the, the time since then that the elders have offered that? There's been several times since then. Have you ever, as an elder, or seen the eldership as a whole return a dime? Never. Because it works. That's why. So if you want to develop that type of a faith, and you're thinking, okay, I need to take a bold step. What bold step should I take? Why don't you start right there? All you have to do is go up to one of our elders and say, I'll take the challenge and see what happens. 10% of your income, you give it to the church. At the end of 90 days, if God has not taken care of you, you come back to one of those elders and say, it doesn't work, I want my money back. Just see what happens. They have never given anything back because it works. Folks, that's a good starting point. It really is. And then you can leap into all the other aspects because now you've tested it and you know And God gives you permission to test him. So try it. See what happens. What do you have to lose? Nothing. Nothing. Try it. See what happens. And then watch it touch every other aspect of your life. You will find a precious faith. One that you will not ever want anyone to take from you. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, Habakkuk knew what he was talking about. When he said, I have heard the stories of the past and I want to relive them. I want to see them for myself. I could echo that prayer. Though I have experienced so many of those and and Lord, I'm grateful for every one of them. I long to continue to see the way you react when your people ask. Make us askers. And then Father, in your faithfulness, make us grateful for your responses. I know that the Really, the biggest thing we all need to long for is a saving relationship with you. And there are those today that are struggling, trying to find that very thing. I'm praying, Lord, that you will break down the walls, the barriers, the stumbling blocks that keep them away from you and let them come to know you personally, to experience salvation not only of their souls, but of their lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.